You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And for the past four years, we've been discussing the importance of our democratic institutions to the national security of the United States, from preserving our credibility globally in the face of a rising China to showing the hope that is America to fledgling nations. And on that score, we recently re-aired a discussion with former Secretary Robert Gates on the key role of civics education in helping Americans navigate the information they receive via social media. Now, while critical thinking skills are vital to being a grateful and engaged citizen, we've been battling the false messages that are pumped out by the likes of Cambridge Analytica and bot mills located in Russia and China. These challenges to America's democratic values now seem minor like we've won a minor battle and we now face the power of Thanos. What we face now specifically is generative AI and the power of this technology to create deep fakes that seem so real that they could baffle even the initiated, educated, and thoughtful. This should concern everybody in the national security space because it could enable foreign powers to alter the views of Americans over time and in any specific election. And they can do this by pumping out false images and video that can dramatically sway public opinion and thereafter elections. So we're going to take a critical look in this series at how generative AI could serve to undermine America's democratic values and in so doing our national security. Now, to be clear, on May 16th of this year, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, and other tech leaders who were crucial to the writing of the code that became generative AI have signed a letter warning that this technology could cause human extinction. We're going to start this series today with Mr. Robert Weissman of Public Citizen, an organization that was originally founded by a well-known consumer advocate, Ralph Nader. Public Citizen has become a leading voice for the American public and fair democratic elections on the serious dangers posed by generative AI. So it's our honor to have him here with us. Robert, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. All right, let's talk. What are your concerns about this new technology? Well, I think there are a lot of concerns related to generative AI, but I assume you want to hone in on the threat of deep fakes to democracy. That threat is maybe the most acute of the problems being posed by generative AI and sort of the easiest to understand in a space that has a lot of science fiction elements to it. This one is very simple. And it's, as you said in the opening comments, generative AI is making it possible now to create audio files, photographs, or photo images, and video clips that appear to be real. At this point in time, it's generally pretty possible, at least for the photo and video elements, for a casual person paying attention to distinguish that a fake is a fake. It's highly likely in not many months from now that will no longer be possible. And it's reasonably likely, and not many months after that, that it'll be nearly impossible for experts to distinguish deep fakes from authentic media. So what does that mean in terms of our politics? Well, it raises the possibility of outside powers, as you say, but also of candidates themselves, political parties, and especially outside organizations, super PACs and dark money organizations, airing false media to discredit an opponent. Now, as you say, we've become used to, unfortunately, the problem of falsity in our elections and, and fake claims. But it's pretty much always been the case that a person who cared to know the truth could figure it out. With deep fakes, that's not really true. 
you can't distinguish or you soon won't be able to distinguish what's true from what's fake, even if you're motivated. And that is a crisis moment. That will be a crisis moment for American democracy. The scenarios aren't very hard to imagine. Two days before an election, a video is suddenly discovered that shows a candidate stumbling around drunk, talking incoherently, maybe because of an age-related issue, apparently being shown in a compromising position sexually with a child. All kinds of things are easy to imagine, and they may appear to be real. The candidate that's the victim of that attack will deny it, but their denial may not be persuasive because you're seeing the thing in front of you. You're going to have to believe that it's a fake. So that's the very likely scenario that we face going forward into upcoming election cycles. And it's even worse than that, actually, because if this stuff becomes prevalent, then you also start to not being able to believe the truth. So when you see valid, authentic photos or video clips or hear audio, you'll have reason to suspect that. And if it is an audio clip, for example, that casts a negative light on a candidate, that candidate can just say, hey, that's a fake. And that will be a suddenly credible claim. I think if you think into the 2016 election and the release of the Access Hollywood tape, it's a certainty that in the deep fake era, candidate Trump would have said, that's a fraud. It would not have been easy to prove that he was wrong. Maybe impossible. Let's talk a little bit about what evidence we're seeing right now in this moment about how in the near future, deep fakes will be deployed, though, in more strategic ways to confuse voters. You've offered two examples, but I know you've been thinking about sort of what would be more of a programmatic thing that could occur in this area. And then we'll move on to what we can do in response. We have to remember, you know, sort of the, the technology has been around for a while. Deep fakes are not brand new, but the high quality deep fakes or at least reasonably good quality deep fakes are very new. It's something that's accessible to you know, a non-specialist, not sort of the special project of a tech firm, we're probably talking about just a matter of months. But we're starting to see deepfakes proliferate on the internet. Some of them are just funny and silly and don't really pretend to be something other than a parody. But some of them do. And we've now seen the early introduction of artificial intelligence into to campaign ads. After President Biden announced he was running for re-election, the Republican National Committee introduced an ad using artificial intelligence, including Biden in it. That one worries me less. It showed Biden in a bunch of apocalyptic seeming scenarios, but it didn't show or present him doing or saying something that he hadn't done or said. Subsequently, though, Ron DeSantis's campaign put out an anti-Trump image that showed him embracing and kissing Tony Fauci. And that did cross the line in showing candidate Trump or former President Trump doing or saying something that in fact he didn't do. If that's a good enough picture right now, that if you're quickly scrolling through a Twitter feed, you'll think it's real. If you pause and look at it, you can see it doesn't seem right. And even if you're not attuned to the particular limitations of deepfakes and AI right now, you have reason to be skeptical. Faces are elongated a little bit. Things don't seem exactly right. That's not going to be the case, but obviously it was good enough that the DeSantis campaign thought they should use it. And I think it's really just a matter of months before the technology improves where those distinguishing features of, of fakedom will no longer be prevalent. So it's a near certainty we're going to see this. You have a lot of political consultants already advertising about how they're going to use AI in the upcoming election. Some of that is hype and puffery for sure. None of them are saying, hey, we're going to use it in ways that are unethical. 
But I think, in fact, they are looking at using it and they will for sure use a tool that's available to them without regard to the ethics of doing so. So the threat is here. It's live. Let's talk a little bit about an agency that isn't that big, but has some role to play here. Let's talk about the Federal Election Commission. If you could educate our listeners on what role the FEC can play. And then I'd like for you to expand a little bit on their recent rulemaking that would pertain to AI. Yeah, well, I'd rather not, but here we go. So the federal, <laughs> and you can also add whether you think it would have any efficacy. We don't worry. Just... Don't worry. All public citizen is not known for playing it uh, close to the vest, so your listeners don't have to worry that I'm going to censor myself. The Federal Election Commission is the national agency that sets the rules related to federal elections, primarily focuses on campaign spending, but other conduct-related issues. In the United States, and especially at the federal level, there is basically no regulation of content in political campaigns that's due to the First Amendment, but beyond just the First Amendment, which gives very, of course, appropriately is very powerful protection to political speech. It has to do with the culture of federal elections. Some states, for example, have more aggressive limits on false claims made in election context, and also has to do with the fecklessness of the agency itself which is a commission with equal members of both leading parties, and in the last decade plus has become completely ineffectual and gridlocked. So it has a strong claim, in my view, probably a winning claim, to be the least effective agency in Washington, D.C. That said, it is the agency with jurisdiction over this question. It's our view that under the agency's existing statutory authority, it has the ability to regulate deep fakes used by candidates or parties, because existing law makes it illegal for a candidate or a party to represent that they're speaking on behalf of another candidate or party. We petitioned, we public citizen petitioned the Federal Election Commission to issue a rule or guidance to clarify that the statute means what I just said it means and applies to deep fakes in the way that we believe it should. You and I are speaking on June 22nd. Earlier today, the FEC met to consider moving forward with our rulemaking petition. That wouldn't have been an adoption of the rule. It would have just been to move the process forward to basically consider whether they should evaluate our proposal. And by a three to three vote, they decided not to proceed on the grounds of what could be generously called a technicality, more appropriately called an irrelevancy, and even more correctly described as an effort to just sabotage common sense efforts to protect our elections. Anyway, the FCC does still have authority. We're going to bring the issue back up to the agency, and we hope, despite their history of fecklessness and today's outrageous actions, that it will proceed to limit deepfakes to the ability it has. It does not have the statutory authority to go after all political actors, including super PACs, outside political committees, and dark money organizations. So we will need other action for that. And to move on that will require legislative action. Okay. Well, that's a minorly depressing thought there. (laughs) It'll be interesting to see what is said publicly ultimately, because I haven't seen it today, but to the extent anything is published on this, we'll certainly hyperlink it in the notes for our listeners, because I do think it's important to understand on what basis agencies make decisions like this and to track it. And that's part of our responsibility as citizens when we want to hold these agencies accountable. But I'd well, like to I, think if you- If I can interject, since this is the Please. ABA, 
I'll give you the legalistic explanation of what happened. One of the commissioners moved that our petition did not follow FEC required form because we did not reference the regulation that we wanted to amend. We just referenced the statutory authority upon which the agency has the right to issue a regulation. Now, as it happens, we're not trying to amend any existing regulation because there is no regulation in this space and there is no regulation that elaborates on the statutory authority. It's also the case that the FEC has the authority if they find a petition to be deficient to move forward with it anyway. But they use this purported technical problem with our petition, a non-existent problem that was curable even if it was a problem as the excuse not to move forward. That's the sort of inside baseball story for your legal listeners. All right. And everyone outside the Beltway right now is scratching their heads and wondering how things like this can happen in the world. I'm inside the Beltway and I don't understand it either. But I'd like to go back to May when some of this finally surfaced in any meaningful way, I think more in the public eye. I think a lot of us for years have been sort of looking at machine learning and the idea that, you know, the algorithm can at some point rewrite itself. Back in May, Sam Altman testified, as I'm sure you're aware, he was one of the developers of generative AI. He's one of the same people who said that it could, in his estimation, create human extinction and not a dystopic thought at all. But let me go over really quickly some of the suggestions that he had as a guy who develops technology and not a policy guy who understands how government really works. But he came up with these three ideas. He said that we should form a new government agency to license AI models with the power to revoke licenses for noncompliance. Two, we should create a set of safety standards for AI models, including evaluations of their dangerous capabilities, including whether they can self-replicate or exfiltrate into the wild, meaning throughout the ether sphere, if you will. And then third, he said we should require independent audits by independent experts of the model's performance on various metrics. So I'm looking at this and I'm wondering, yeah, like, what does that look like? Where would the appropriations and authority for this come from? Who would have the lead on it? And if technology companies are so wealthy and Americans don't want to spend their tax dollars on our you know, institutions to keep some of these companies in check, how would we ever even do this? Is this at all realistic or is this sort of externalizing some guilt feelings that he may have for the potential of this technology to create chaos regarding our democratic institutions? What, what, what were your thoughts when you were listening to this stuff? Right. Well, what, to be clear, the, the things that he was proposing that you just read, which have support from, from other of the big tech companies, that speaks to ge- generally to generative AI. It goes beyond the specific focus that we're talking about with deep fakes. I think the three points that you just referenced are all really good ideas. I think they are very doable. I think they are very necessary. There's a lot of filling in there about how that would work. And I don't believe that any of the companies making these proposals actually have worked through the details for themselves. I mean, I don't want to defer to them, but in making these proposals, I don't think they've got the details worked out. On the one hand, give them credit if they're sincere, as I actually think they are, in saying there needs to be some regulation. And this is all new. The issues presented by generative AI are novel and confusing and sometimes just downright weird. It's completely understandable that we don't have any off-the-shelf solutions to apply to AI. However, of course, these are the people who, Sam Altman, for example, and his company, OpenAI, and the the other companies, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, are the companies racing the technology forward. It's a lot more excusable for me to say, hey, we need regulation, and I don't quite know what it should be yet. 
And for the companies that are causing the problem and making it worse by the day, racing forward in ways that are making it more out of control to say, hey, we need a solution. We're for it. We don't really know what it is, but we're not going to pause. And by the way, we think this thing really might get out of control and we could extinguish humanity. That, that's not so okay. Some credit to them for recognizing the need for regulation, but there's this major disjuncture, which I think is morally upsetting between these quite extreme statements about the potential downsides of generative AI. And there's a lot of different variations of what these threats are. Quite a disjunction between that and then the comp- and saying we need regulation and then not pausing, like just continuing the problem. There's an additional problem, particularly with OpenAI and Sam Altman. The European Union is ahead of us on trying to do regulation of, of AI generally. Sam Altman in particular and OpenAI have lobbied against the regulatory standards that the Europeans were trying to put forward. So what is totally not okay is to say, hey, we need regulation in the abstract and then try to sabotage the regulation in reality that nation states or, or regional entities are trying to adopt. Okay, but this gets back to Americans and sort of their role. Let's assume for a moment that this technology is like COVID. It's something we're going to have to live with. We can't put it back in the box. We can't unring the bell. Let's start and kind of work through a few thoughts here. And the first one is, what can individuals, Americans, in the course of their civic responsibilities, what can they do face with the development of this technology? I think the answer turns on being citizens, not consumers or users. So it's not about whether you tune out disinformation or don't join a social network or refuse to use chat GPT. You need to make your own decision about that, but that's not going to materially change the social impact of these technologies. We need strong controls on these technologies. And as as we said at the outset, the deep fake issue is very serious, but also the easiest to solve, the easiest to explain, and the easiest to cure. People need to be actively engaged citizens and, and push for solutions. When we do get this issue represented at the Federal Election Commission, it'll be important that regular people write into the commission and say, yes, absolutely, we need you to act. And as it moves forward, as bills move forward in Congress, there are a couple introduced already. I think there'll be more in the near term. We need the public to rally around that legislation and not let it get bogged down. The norm in, in Washington, D.C., and in most state houses is inertia. Absent pressure and force, you know, nothing will happen. But if people lean into this one, I think we can make a real difference. It's going to be harder on these broader issues around generative AI, pretty easy on the issue of deep fakes. You know, one thing we did not discuss, but is really important to say about this, is that there's no partisan advantage. There's no one who's going to benefit from the spread of deep fakes. Everyone will equally lose. And if anybody thinks that the other party is the one that will use the deep fakes and not mine, I promise you, you are wrong. Both sides of the major parties, if not the candidates, the outside organizations will absolutely use technology that's available to them, if at least if it's legal without restraint, if they can see advantage. And that's just a race to the bottom that we all lose. Then that's not hard to see. So there's actually a shared cross-partisan interest in dealing with this deep fake problem before it spins out of control. And I, I think in this particular area, we have a real chance of doing it and we really can't afford not to. But whether we succeed will depend exactly on what you're getting at, which is do people engage and, and demand that their elected representatives take action? Yeah, I would like to believe 
that more education would be pushed out and that groups would form like mothers who might be concerned about the future for their children of an America where nobody believes in anything having to do with our government, our system, the things that have served us so well for 250 years. So I would like to see more citizens get involved. And I would like to see people respond when legislation comes up and make their voices heard to their elected officials. I think, unfortunately, it's going to be very important to get that message out because a lot of people are just consumed with their lives. And it's a it's a tricky and into that space, into that void. A lot of bad things slip when it comes to legislation. But let's go on to schools and government leaders. Schools could play a role in educating on this topic. And so could government leaders. What kind of thing would you like to see developed in those two areas? Well, I think among schools, whether it's, you know, younger kids or university level, I think it's not really a matter of media literacy. That's, that's fine. People should learn how to interpret the media and information. They should absolutely, of course, the most vital skills to learn how to be a critical thinker. First of all, if you as an individual think are confident you're going to be able to distinguish deep fakes from real things, you're wrong. You're not going to be able to. But even if you are able to, it doesn't do anything for the social problem. So the bigger thing is to understand we've got a new technology coming with applications in cross society way beyond what we're talking about with just deep fakes. It's potentially transformative in ways that may be positive and foreseeable ways that will, could be quite negative. There's nothing preordained about what the future is going to be with this technology. It's entirely dependent on how society chooses to regulate and control it and to regulate and control the corporations that are developing it and going to deploy it. So I think that's the lesson for kindergarten. And I think that's the lesson for PhDs. And it's same thing when basically when it comes to government officials, this is not a case of an inevitable, it's not a force of nature. This is a, this is a human created technology under the control of human constructs, corporations. If we let them do it on their own, it's going to go really bad. And if we societies operating through our democratic governance exercise controls and impose restraints, then maybe we can get some really good outcomes and avoid the bad ones. And that's what we have to do. I'd like to turn to Section 230 of the Telecommunications Decency Act. It sounds just as old a law as it actually is. You know, There was nothing at the time of 230's development and discussion that you could draw a straight line to today with generative AI, I don't believe. I'm wondering if anything, if you think anything would need to be modified with respect to 230 to make clear that there would be certain accountability for the development of particular codes in this space. What are your thoughts on that? So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act holds what we now call platforms, but were originally called electronic bulletin boards, immune from liability for things that are posted on their sites. And the original idea was if you're creating, you know, could you imagine, because it was even pre this, but if you imagine a web page with people able to comment on it, you shouldn't be liable for something that someone posts as a comment on your web page that's, say, slanderous about somebody else. And you, the web page owner, shouldn't be liable as a public policy matter, because if you are, you're going to exercise a lot of censorship over what people post, you may not let people post, and we won't have a flourishing, decentralized and democratic debate and conversation. That was the idea. Now, as the as those old electronic bulletin boards have evolved into the, the giant social platforms, which are driven by corporate controlled algorithms, 230 has become kind of a different thing, or is now being applied in new contexts that were wildly different than what people were thinking about. 
at the origin. And so it's controversial for a lot of reasons. That said, I think the best view is that Section 230 won't apply to the generative AI from the large language models. The idea of Section 230 was that a third party is posting on someone else's website about another person. With generative AI, it's just to say ChatGPT, for example, it's not that I'm going to post on ChatGPT. ChatGPT is going to generate its own content. And that, if you look at the language of Section 230, isn't covered. And I think that's the best reading. You know, so there'll probably be a fight over this. But I, I, I don't think that Section 230 is going to give immunity to generative AI companies in the same way it has provided pretty broad immunity to the big tech platforms. Let's go back for a minute to the pending elections. What would an ethical rule or any law that would govern candidate conduct vis-a-vis AI, what would those rules look like if we crafted them? Super simple. Deceptive deepfakes are illegal. And what does that mean? It means if you have a deepfake that aims to show someone saying or doing something that they didn't actually say or do, that's illegal. Can you use AI and label it? This is generated by AI. Sure. Then you're not tricking people into thinking that there's seeing something that was real that in fact wasn't. So you can think about it either as an outright ban or a disclosure regimen. In this case, disclosure destroys the fakeness, the believable fakeness. And so it has the same impact. But the rule, depending on how you want to, how much time, how many words you want to spend on defining what a deep fake is, it's one sentence. Okay. And it'll be interesting to see if this is defended on First Amendment grounds, that somehow this contributes to free speech when I cannot imagine a serious, thoughtful discussion that would say it does. I think it's beyond the bounds of First Amendment protection, even though they're so strong for political speech. It's not just false speech, which it is. It's false and deceptive speech whose purpose is to be deceptive, not by some subjective standard, but objectively deceptive. And I don't think the First Amendment is going to stand in the way of addressing it. We really appreciate you coming in tonight to talk to us about this. Well, thanks for having me. It's important. And I'm glad that from the national security angle, you're seeing this issue, among many others, an attack on our democracy, really threatening to sabotage our democracy as as a national security issue. Our guest tonight has been Robert Weissman, president of Public Citizen. You can learn more about Mr. Weissman's work by going to citizen.org, and we will add some hyperlinks that can further educate you on this topic. Thanks for tuning in tonight to NSLT, and remember to share this episode with a friend. Reclaim your attention span by listening to our long-form podcasts intended to bring you real law, real discussions, not sound bites or clickbait. You can send us comments and feedback by reaching us on Twitter, at least for now, at ABA NatSec, or you can also contact us directly by email at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salido is our program manager, and my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for being here. We'll see you next time in this series. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.